Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. The Apostle Paul teaches us that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. There is no other means by which we can approach the one true and living God. For he is a just God, and therefore he judges righteously. He looks upon us and sees us no longer as covered in sin, but sees us through the covering of the shed blood of Christ. He declares us righteous not because of what we have done, but what he has done. This means we have a right standing within the covenant relationship he has made with us. We can rightfully be his people, and he has promised to be our God. So brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And all God's people say, Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord Yahweh, what wilt thou give me, since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of of Yahweh came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in Yahweh, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. We'll turn now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Beginning in verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall shall not God bring about justice for his elect, who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes for all I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for, such, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child... Excuse me. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. And a certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Do you know the commandments? Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess 
and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things impossible with men are possible with God. And Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation now Psalm 137. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. No better song to sing on Reformation Celebration Day than A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Please join me. Father, we draw near to hold fast to the confession, which is our hope for the one who promised is faithful. Please teach us, give us ears to hear, give us minds to think, and give us your spirit to illumine us. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I've done quite a few funerals in 40 years, and some of them have been infants. One was my own grandson. There was an occasion, I don't know, maybe it was 10 years ago, maybe longer than that, I don't remember now, where a family in the church had a child who was in the hospital in the ICU for quite some time, and if I remember correctly, this was a girl, and she died. And we had a memorial service here at the church one evening, and uh, I taught, encouraged the people to understand that this baby was with the Lord. Someone in the congregation who was at that memorial was very upset with me and said, how do you know that? And uh, it soured him, and eventually he left the church. He was a, what I'd call a strongly reformed person. Uh, I'd call myself that too. And he just couldn't fathom about children.
So if you take somebody like John MacArthur and you read his book, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, he will tell you in there that all babies go to heaven. Does that mean the babies of Muslims go to heaven? The babies of Jews that deny the Messiah go to heaven? The babies of Buddhists, do they go to heaven? When you read Psalm 137 and you come to the end, happy is the man that dashes your babies against the rock. Whoa. Well, it's Reformation Sunday, everybody. Cheer up. We're going to look briefly at this passage that Hyde read out of, out of Luke. But first, I want to remind you that whether it comes to infants or if it comes to five-year-olds, or 10-year-olds, or 12-year-olds, or 90-year-olds, the Reformation has taught us much, and we need to think it through. Consequently, I just want to remind you of the, what we call the five solas. There are some people who don't agree with this totally. They still could be justified. But it would be hard to see that. Sola Scriptura means, as opposed to the Roman Catholic Church, the Reformation taught correctly that the only authority comes from God's Word. And it has no errors. And it is everything we need to live for life and godliness. In addition, it answers every question in life. Not always directly, but in principle. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. At McKinney Bible Church, we believe that the scriptures are the truth. And when a preacher stands, he can make mistakes but the scriptures never make a mistake. When a preacher stands, he can teach it wrongly, but the, correct, the scriptures always remain true and authoritative, and it is what God wants we, us to read, and it comes right from his breath. He speaks. He guided the authors, and what he wants is written down for us. you wouldn't do much better than reading the Bible. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't read other Christian literature. After all, you're here to listen to me, and somebody writes it down in a book, it's the same thing. But we're here for God's Word because we want truth. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. Christ is the sacrifice that gives to us eternal life. Christ alone. No works, no nothing else. Sola Fide. And after he brought 
them out, he said to them, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Faith alone. Faith alone in Christ alone, based on the scriptures alone, saves a person. So, la gratia. Grace alone. We cannot find our way to God. You are like blind men. I am a blind man, groping my way through life. Sometimes I've groped the wrong thing. You're supposed to laugh. You all know what it means. I've said it too many times. Grace alone. It's God's decision upon who he showers grace. He does not shower grace on everyone. He showers, if I could put it this way, general grace. People get to hear the gospel. But unless he opens their heart to respond in faith like Lydia, they will not respond. They will resist. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has showered grace abundantly in this assembly. Soli Dio Gloria. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Salvation from beginning to end is all of God, not of man, so that God gets all the glory. You can't claim you're smarter than somebody, more insightful than somebody. That may be true, but that did not bring you to Christ. No, just God did. So, there's the word, the expression we use, justification by faith alone. Justification, as you know, we went through Romans, means to be declared right. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us continue to sin. But in Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins, we are declared right and we can have a right relationship with God. All based on what God does. What about a two-year-old? Turn, if you would, to excuse me, Luke chapter eighteen. Luke chapter eighteen is just a wonderful chapter. Of course, I suppose you should say that about every chapter of the Bible. But uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 5 doesn't seem quite as wonderful with that whole list of names, does it? But it is. It's inspired. Luke 18 is uh, couched, might I just make this wonderful observation, between 17 and 19. 
And when you come to the end of 17, starting in verse 20, all the way down to the end of the chapter, the question is being answered about the coming of the kingdom. By the way, when you think of the word gospel, do you think the gospel of the kingdom? Oh, yeah, that's what you find in, quote, the gospels, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news about the kingdom. So they're wondering when the kingdom is going to come, and Jesus says, well, he describes it like in Noah's day, like in Lot's day. He describes it like you know from Matthew 24. But he says, it's among you. When you get to chapter 19, after the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus tells a parable because he wants people to understand that the kingdom is not coming immediately. And so he tells a parable. We call it the parable of the Minas, where a nobleman goes off to receive a kingdom. And when he goes, he entrusts Amina to ten different men, and they do work, and he comes back, and he sees what they've done, and he gives them authority in his kingdom based on what they have done, and one man's done nothing but hit his mina, and he takes that mina away from him and gives it to the man with the most minas. Lord, he has ten minas. He who has will have more. He who doesn't have even what he has will be taken away. And then he says... Because when he was on the way to get the kingdom, his citizens sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want him to rule over us. So when he comes back, he's done dealing with his ten servants. He then says, bring those who did not meet or reign over them into my presence and slay them before me. Of course, it's unmistakable what he's talking about, even as the rest of the chapter goes on to explain. He's talking about A.D. 70. Now, as we discuss this, you need to keep Daniel in mind, because in Daniel chapter 2, there's this, gold, this statue with a gold head and arms and shoulders of silver and a chest of bronze and going down to the legs, then you have iron. And it represents four kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and the Roman Empire. And then stone cut without hands comes out and smashes the statue in the feet and it crumbles into dust that nobody can find. And then the stone grows into a mountain throughout the whole earth. And when you get to chapter 7, there's this picture of four beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and then this beast of most terror. And the throne is set up for judgment, and the beasts are judged. The final beast is judged, and then the people of God are given the sovereignty, the power, the authority, the dominion of a kingdom that lasts forever. Luke 18 is between two chapters about kingdom. This has something to do with kingdom. The first story, as Hyde read for us in verses 1 through 8, is about an unjust judge. I just want you to notice, as, as you work your way through, through the first 14 verses, there are all these words uh, like, uh, I need legal protection. Every one of these words in the Greek came from the same root, and the root is just. That's where justify comes from, just in a verbal form. Righteous, yeah, we can't do it in English. It's the same root. So there's this unjust, unrighteous judge. Does it sound like the United States? Your Supreme Court. They're not righteous. It's the law of the land, but they enact laws, make decisions 
They're not righteous. We know that. Okay, so she's got a problem with an opponent. We're not told what it is. But she represents something. She's a widow. And widows and orphans, James, we learned that in James chapter 1. We're supposed to visit widows and orphans in their distress. And this judge won't even pay any attention to her. And when you go back to the Old Testament, I mean, that's the big thing. Widows and orphans. You take care of the poor people, the needy people. You know, that, 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 we, we would all agree with that. It becomes a quagmire. I've been haunted for the last two years with a woman who needed help. We helped. We helped again. We helped again. And then the elder said, no more help. But there's Craig, the private churchman, who could have helped after that. That woman is living in her car right now. These are hard questions. Anyway, there's this unrighteous judge, and he won't listen, but the woman is persistent. And so, because she bothers him, he decides to give her justice. So, Jesus said, do you hear what the unjust judge is saying? Verse 7. Now, shall not God bring about justice, same word, for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them. Oh, my mind says speedily. I, I don't like that. I know why it's translated that way. The implication is that when he decides to do it, it'll all happen real fast, but that's not the point. He'll bring about justice soon. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the land? So if we just follow 17 through 19, and we got this little sandwich with chapter 18 right there in the middle of it all, and we say, okay, we're not talking about what you and I refer to as the second coming, mind you. Just a little admission. I might be wrong. Not likely, but I might be wrong. So if some of you think it's talking about the end, what we have to say, still, it, it still comes out the same. So don't distress over it. So you have from 30 AD to 70 AD and a growing church full of people like you who are elect, chosen by God, Granted with the gift of faith. God shows you his grace. You've come to believe that when you open up God's word, he's talking to you. It's true. And you couldn't be reading anything more important. These people are suffering. At the beginning of the time from the Jews, they're being put to death. Like guys like Saul who drag them into court and get them put to death. For blasphemy. Well, what do you do? Well, you got an opponent. And you cry for justice. But who do you cry to? Well, this woman, it's a parable, cried to a judge. But who is the judge? If we're talking about the church, well, Jesus Christ is the judge. And we cry. Just like in our country now, the church should be crying for justice. Not just for our sakes, but for the sake of the lost. Justice, righteousness should rule this land. Not a bunch of criminals. So, here it is. They're suffering and... Jesus is telling his disciples, look, 
Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Cry for justice. But when the Son of Man shows up, and he showed up in A.D. 70, Jesus himself told us that's what he was going to do. He said it to Caiaphas. Nevertheless, the, the Son of Man is sitting at the right hand of God, coming on the clouds with power and great glory. That refers to Daniel. And so he comes. Nobody saw him, but he had arranged a whole host called the Roman army. And boom, Jerusalem was destroyed. And Jews, 1.25 million of them crucified. Ouch. Now, we cry. But Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the land? Well, the next parable, which is a parable we love because it's a Reformation parable. And that's why I chose it. Yeah, now, you know, there's a, there's a movement afoot, and I have to, I have to confess, I, I agree with the movement afoot. And so we've been doing something for the last two years that we didn't do the previous years. That is, we've been reading through the Gospels four times a year. Why? Because we in the West do not know the Gospels. We know Romans, Galatians, and Corinthians, and Ephesians. That's what we know. That's what we're always taught. The Gospels, we don't know. The Gospel of the Kingdom, we don't think along those lines. But here's this parable here, and it has justification in it. And when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you find precious little of that. You go to Romans, the whole book's about it. You go to Galatians, the whole book is about it. We like... Romans, well, because of the Reformation, so we should. We also like Romans, quite frankly, because it's easier to understand than the Gospel of Luke. You see, we can understand a little parable, but why you got kingdom and then parable, parable, rich young ruler, story about Christ's death and resurrection, blind men, and then a wee man, Zacchaeus, and then the kingdom again. We don't know why it's written that way. We don't ask those kinds of questions. So, you know, narrow it down to just a little point, just one paragraph, and we can handle it. But, of course, that's not the way a narrative works. So here we are with, you know, the most famous of Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, and it's the story of two men and the two men come to the temple to pray and uh, we're told in verse 9 verse 9 and he also told this parable uh, to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with Contempt. Well, the word contempt is, they're, they're nothing. They're nothing. And the word trusted here is not, not the word that you think of trust. It's they're, they're persuaded that they're pretty good. They're righteous. They do what's right. And that's exactly what, these, what the first man does. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to God? No, to himself. God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers. Unrighteous is the word, unjust, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. On the other hand, here I do what's right. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes of all that I get. Well, fasting twice a week, not required in the law. Giving tithes of everything, 
Not required in the law. Hey, God, I know what you said, but I'm better than that. The only time a fast took place in Israel was on the Day of Atonement. Levi, Leviticus 16. You fast and afflict yourself. That is, you remember that you're a sinner. So this guy thinks he's quite somebody. And he uses the name God. But he's talking to himself. Now friends, don't be too critical because we tend to be like that too. We tend to think we know more. We live better. People follow our example. They can pull themselves up out of the gutter. And we hold people in contempt. We look at the way they do things, the way they live, and we, we just shove them down because, man, I'm more spiritual than they are. We just don't say it that way. But that's what a critical spirit is. We like to put people down, so we bring ourselves up. Well, the tax collector, of course, he's not a very popular guy. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, you come up to the temple and... uh, you know, you can get right in the doorway of the court, and you can be there. Probably what we're to picture is that's where the Pharisee's standing, but this guy's standing back somewhere in the court of the Gentiles. Remember, the court of the Gentiles, it was huge. It ran all the way around about the whole, the whole campus was three or four football fields worth. So he's standing somewhere off in the distance. And when Jesus prayed in Luke 17, he lifted his eyes up to heaven. And of course, when you come to the temple and you cannot go into the Holy of Holies, but it is a picture of the cosmos, you recognize, okay, here God's telling me something. Here's where his presence is supposed to be. Here's where his throne is. But really his throne is up there. So when Jesus looks up to heaven, he's looking up to God. Just like when Israel was in the land and then they got cast out. What do they want to do? They want to look back because they were told, if you've sinned, you look at the temple because that's where God lives and you talk to him. Lord, forgive me. So this publican, he's there. He's as close as he can get because after all, he's a pretty good guy. But the tax collector won't even look up to heaven. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Well, now, the word mercy is, comes from a root that's used, oh, five, six, seven times in the New Testament. It's used in Romans chapter 3. God, Jesus, is our propitiation. It's used in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus is our propitiation. It's used in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, that he might be merciful and a faithful high priest. A propitiating high priest is the sense. And it's used in Hebrews chapter 9, verse Five, to refer to a piece of furniture in the temple, in the tabernacle. And that piece of furniture is the kephret. You have this box, the Ark of the Covenant. And on top, you have a lid that's made of pure gold with angels on either end. And that is the propitiation place. And 
Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest comes in with blood for himself and blood for the sins of the people, and he comes up and he sprinkles it right on the covering, and underneath that covering are two tables of stone, the Ten Commandments, one table for God, one table for man, and blood's on top of it now, and then he sprinkles seven times in front of it. But, of course, the blood of bulls and goats, says Hebrews, can never take away sin. But the blood of Jesus, he was a public display for propitiation in his blood, says Romans chapter 3, verse 25. He's our redemption. He's the one who's given us faith. It's God who's gracious towards us. And that covering that covers all that law that's written down that Israel has totally violated, the blood takes care of it. And so it has for you and for me. By faith, in the blood of Christ, the finished work on the cross. So Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is the judge, and he says, okay, here's what I'm telling you. I declare this man righteous. Now, when we talk about justification by faith, and this is, this is uh, well, let me just tell you, it, it, it's, it is currently in dispute around the world. When we talk about justification by faith, we talk about imputation. You know, we say, okay, here I am the sinner, and the judge imputes to me the righteousness of Christ. And here I am, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and the judge imputes to me the sin of my people. Now, as one theologian said, well, you know, imputation is a inference in the Bible. It may not be that's the way to explain it, but that's the best way for us to get it. The whole point is, however you explain it, is Jesus Christ hangs on a cross and he sheds his blood down to the earth from his body as our substitute our federal head, our representative. And he dies for our sins. So make, make no mistake, imputation may be a disputed point, but it's inconsequential. What's consequential is Jesus represented you, me, and everyone else he saved on that cross, and his blood was shed for our sins. And his death takes the place of your death and my death. And he was handed over, Romans chapter 4, verse 25, on account of our transgressions. And he was raised on account of our justification. If you trust the shed blood of Christ on Calvary that he died for your sins, he paid the penalty for your sins, he died in your place, you can say, praise God, I am justified. Now, as one man puts it, that's a verdict that comes at the end of time, but it's brought back into history to you and me. And now we sense that declaration by the Scriptures, but we know there's a final judgment coming, and 
we're going to live life now, and some people are going to stand at that judgment seat thinking they're going to hear you're justified, when in fact their life will have proved they're not justified. Because when someone is declared righteous, of course, that is one work of the whole work of salvation, and the Spirit comes into our life, and the Spirit takes us down a trail of living righteously and forsaking sin. And we need to preach that loudly, not to make people unsure of their salvation. We need to preach it loudly because people need to understand, okay, I, I, I walked down an aisle and I trusted Christ. I heard a radio program and I trusted Christ. I read my Bible and I trusted Christ. They need to hear, okay, that's good. Now, people who are in God's family start acting like God. So this man's justified. So when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, yeah, he'll find faith among what kind of people? Well, he doesn't use the word faith in this little parable. He uses a different word, humble, humble. It's a word that Seems to get down low to the ground. That's humble. In fact, it's, you know, I'm not somebody great. What I am is a sinner in need of salvation. This person who's low to the ground is going to be pushed up, 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 up until what? They rule the earth. Can you imagine it? Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> now you see, our time's almost gone. And uh, there are two more stories I was going to talk about, but we'll just talk about one of them, the next one. Now, there's a progression. So we have this woman who needs justice, and she's crying out. And Jesus tells the story to say, hey, look, keep crying to God. He will act, and he will act soon. But when he comes to act, will he find faith? Well, in this thing, I think we need to translate land, because it's talking about, it's talking about Jerusalem. It's talking about Judaism. The principle applies to us just as well. And then he goes on to tell about the... Pharisee and the tax collector, Pharisee and the publican. And he's talking about our treasured doctrine, justification by faith, declared right when we're still really not quite very righteous. But we're moving along that pathway. We're following Jesus. We've decided, yeah, I'm going to take up my cross, deny self, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk down the pathway with Jesus, and whatever he says, that's what I'm going to believe, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to trust in my own thinking, Proverbs chapter 3. I'm going to trust Christ. And he's going to kill my old life, and a new one's going to develop. So he doesn't use the word trust. He uses the word humble. Then comes this little statement about children, verse 15. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, the problem there is can you be more such as these than the children you're talking about? Of course you can't be. 
And in the Greek, it's just one little tiny word. It's not such as these. It's just one word. Unless you're such. Well, now, what do we make of that? Do we say, okay, well, all the little children, all the world, whatever little children is, here it's babies. Do we say, okay, the kingdom of God belongs to all of them? Are we supposed to say that? Well, probably not. So, the millions of babies that are aborted, they're human. Are we supposed to say, oh, yeah, 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 the kingdom belongs to them. They're going to heaven. Are we supposed to say that? Well... Maybe not. Happy is the guy that dashes the heads of your little ones against the rock. So what do we do? You know, all of us in this room are no different than a little baby. We would not be a, quote, Christian except for God's work, the five solas. It's not like you grow up and you get better at choosing for God. That doesn't happen. In fact, you grow up and you get more resistant to God. So what do we make of it? It's not an easy question to answer. And I'm not sure that we want an answer different than everybody under the age of accountability that dies all around the whole world goes to heaven. I'm not sure I can give you that answer. Because the Bible works covenantally. And I think what he's talking about here is covenant children. Now, mind you, Everybody who goes to heaven who's at a certain age must believe in the cross. What happens at, say, one-year-old down to two days born or down to inside the womb and ripped out in abortion? What do we say about that? We can't understand. Could they possibly believe? Could they possibly be justified? Well, Justification is not talked about in those terms. It's talked about in different terms. People you go talk to, you share the gospel with, you tell them about Christ, you tell them about their sin. But, you know, I, I know they say it's good to talk to the baby in the womb, but I bet you many of you who talk to your baby in the womb were not saying you're a sinner, you know it? And we can't deny because we're told in Psalm 51, I was conceived in sin and I was born in iniquity. <laughs> I'm constituted a sinner right at birth. It's not a question, will I sin? The question is, when am I going to start sinning? And, you know, it happens somewhere maybe three months, four months old. You, you can watch it with your kids, it happens. I'm not saying they don't sin before that. I'm saying that might be when you notice they sin. So what do we do? Okay, so I'm going to work by way of analogy just for a couple of minutes, and then sometime down the road when I get to preach again, I might pick it up again, and I might not. So I'm going to go back to the Abrahamic covenant. Just give me three or four or five minutes here. I'm going to go back to the Abrahamic covenant. <laughs> and I'm going to say, in chapter 15, the doctrine of justification by faith in the Old Testament in Genesis began. Abraham believed God. He looked up at all those stars and he said, oh yeah, I believe. And it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Then God cuts a covenant with him, makes covenant with Abraham. And then in chapter 17, God gives a sign of the covenant. And the sign of the covenant was circumcision. 
not just to your own descendants, but to every male child in your household, whether they were brought in from outside or you bought them or you conceived them. Everyone. At eight days old, they get circumcised. And right away, people say, oh, yeah, yeah, God's so smart. He knew at eight days old, blood begins to clot best. The Bible doesn't work that way. That's like saying, you know, oh, well, you look at those food laws and you discover what food's not good for you. That's not the point of the food laws, nor is it the point of circumcision. The point of circumcision is there was blood. The point of circumcision is it's on the eighth day. Not the sixth or the seventh, but the eighth day. Now you're in the covenant. You're counted something different. And God says, I'll be their God and they'll be my sons. Oh, hordes of them didn't go to heaven. They weren't like their great-grandfather Abraham believing God. They went the other way. And yet they were in the covenant. And some people say, well, you know, we're in the new covenant. Everybody in the new covenant has to be justified. Somebody find me chapter and verse, I'll change my mind. It's not there. Here are these little kids coming to Jesus, the disciples. No, they're not important. They're, they're nobodies. And they come, and what do the parents want Jesus to do? Touch them. Have you read how many times touch is in the Gospels? What happens when Jesus touches somebody? Or when somebody touches Jesus? What happens? Suddenly they can hear. Suddenly they can see. They were dead, but suddenly they've risen from the dead. Or in another place, they want him to lay hands on it. It's the same, same context, I mean, same, same idea, but it's written different by each gospel writer, the synoptic gospels. Lay hands on him and bless them. Now, if Jesus says, hey, let the little children come to me, and he puts his hands on a little child and he says, go to hell, would that be a blessing? I don't think so. No. Because a blessing is... The very word means to speak well of. So, what I'm suggesting to you, and this is how I think we can all say, God intends for all of our children to come to justification by faith. In the meantime, as they grow, they're counted holy. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we've talked about it several times. They're saints. Not saints like the Catholic Church talks about saints. Saints like saints are. Everybody in this room is a saint. If you've been called by Christ, you're a saint. And when Jesus says to the little children, come to me, oh yeah. And then it becomes parental duty. Parental duty. Parental obligation. Parental like there's nothing more important in all of life than this. And that is, raise those children, not by the way you think, but by the way the scriptures teach. Boom. Your kids will trust Christ. Stand with me. Father, we're grateful for men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Martin Bucer and so, so many others who, when it was unpopular to teach the truth, they put their, lines, their lives on the line and they taught truth. And you reformed the church and we are all here, the beneficiaries of it. And we thank you for that. 
And we thank you that uh, our salvation is all based on you, from you, to you, going to be home with you one day. It's all you. Yet, we're responsible to live like sons and daughters of the living God. Help us to do that. And we thank you for Psalm 127 and Psalm 128 that tell us how blessed we are with our children. They're like olive shoots around our table. The doors of the temple were made of olive wood. And around our table, they're just little plants growing up to be olive trees. Christians. Help us to believe and live it out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.